Yeah, so as Tia said, um, if you haven't come to any courses yet, I encourage you to sign up for uh, Ownership 101. Uh, that's kind of our, our just, what does it take to make your faith your own? It's the basics of the gospel. We kind of go through the gospel story. We'll talk about God's story and your story and give you time to kind of think through and discuss some of that stuff. So even if you've been a Christian for a long time and uh, you just started recently coming to LifeBridge, I'd encourage you to sign up for that one first. Um, you can even do both. If you want to do a Tuesday and a Thursday, they're both the same. Um, Tuesday and Thursday night, we'll have both courses running at the same time as well. So sign up for those. Those cards are on the table. You can sign up online or you can sign up through those cards. Just fill it out and drop them in the giving boxes at either end of the hallway. All right. And yeah, Doctrine 101, that's a new one for this campaign that I'm putting it, putting together. I read a uh, Barna study few weeks back and just indicated the doctrinal deficiencies within the evangelical church. And I was like, okay, yeah, I was thinking about doing this anyways. Now it's time. We got to definitely do that. So we will uh, talk about some of the basics of the Christian faith in that course. So yeah, go ahead and sign up, fill out that card and drop it in one of the boxes. And yeah, we'd love to see you for our conference weeks. All right, let's pray and then we'll jump into the sermon. Lord, God, we thank you. We praise your name. We glorify you, Lord. It is such a joy to be here together to honor you and to give you praise. And Lord, to gather with our church family, to love one another and to love you as you have called us to, Lord. So God, as we open your word and as we, as we sing today, would you be honored and glorified in our heart's disposition towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Our campaign that we're in is called The Third Way. In this campaign, we're talking about how to live the way of Jesus in a polarized world. Now, uh, the election is coming up, so I'm sure you've seen those ads, right? The uh, targeted, kind of, yeah, very direct ads that polarize us more and more. So every time we come up to an election cycle, election season, the polarization just seems to increase and get bigger and bigger. So... The honor, the privilege for Christians is that there's a better way to live, that we don't have to exist in this polarized society and be just pulled in one direction or another. Our aim, our goal, is to follow the way of Jesus. Where we find alignment with one ideology, we are free to accept it. Where we find disagreement with the way of Jesus, then we must reject it. Because the way of Jesus is our primary way of thinking and living. We must first be informed by Jesus. So we go to Jesus first, and then everything else comes secondary or further on down the line. So the way of Jesus is what we're after. We've talked about a lot in this campaign. We'll kind of, we'll talk about, uh, today we're talking about one of the key aspects of the difference between the way of Jesus and pretty much every other uh, polarized culture or cultural ideology in our world today. And I want to begin by quoting David Brooks. He kind of described who he is in this quote, but he, he said this at the National Prayer Breakfast in 2020, and he wrote up an article on it called America's Crisis of Contempt. He says, as you have heard, I'm not a priest or a minister. I'm a social scientist and a university professor, but most importantly, I'm a follower of Jesus, who taught each of us to love God and to love each other. I'm here today to talk about what I believe is the biggest crisis facing our nation and many other nations today. This is the crisis of contempt. Later, he defines contempt 
Uh, in the words of the 19th century philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, he says, contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. So he says this idea of contempt, this conviction of the worthlessness of another, is the biggest crisis facing our nation today. So the polarization that is tearing our society apart. If I do my job in the next few minutes, I promise I won't depress you. I appreciate that. Sounds like a depressing topic. And hopefully each week you come in and hear my introduction, and you're like, oh man, this is going to be a big bummer. But you walk out encouraged and strengthened, right? It's not just the polarization. It's how we live within it and follow the way of Jesus that gives us a great opportunity, as he's going to say, to represent the way of Jesus. On the contrary, I will show you why I believe that within this crisis resides the best opportunity we have ever had as people of faith, to lift our nations up and bring them together. After saying this, he goes into quoting Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, the text that we are going to read today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up here to Matthew 5, 43 to 44, or you just follow along on the screen. This is one of the most dramatic teachings of Jesus, one of the most challenging teachings of Jesus. It's hard enough for Christians to do. <laughs> so if you're not a Christian, if you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, then this is one that you're exempt from, okay? You don't have to do this. This is just for Christians, right? But if you're not a Christian and you're kind of checking this whole Jesus, Christian culture thing out, this is what Christians are called to, okay? So don't define or base what Christianity is off of your experiences that you have had with Christians. Base it on the words of Jesus. This is our target. This is what we're shooting for. This is what we should be shooting for, at least. We don't always get it right. Jesus says, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's quoting Leviticus 19.18. Leviticus 19.18 says to love your neighbor. And some in the rabbinic tradition of Jesus' day had interpreted this to mean that they are then free to hate their enemy. It's just a logical kind of jump. And there's this actually, it was, it's rather clever, right? Uh, there's this debate going on in Jesus' day as to exactly who it is who constitutes your neighbor. So one of the ways they get around this is like, well, define neighbor, right? They're like playing with semantics to try to get around the difficulty of loving people that you don't like. So some of them define neighbor very narrowly to just their, uh, just their nationality, the Jews. Some of, it defined, some of them defined it more broadly. So Jesus was actually asked this at one point in his ministry in Luke chapter 10. And he was talking with an expert in the law, the law of Moses, that is. And here's his answer. So, but he, the expert in the law, he wanted to justify himself because uh, Jesus, he had asked Jesus, what's the, two, what's the greatest commandment? And the expert in the law said accurately, love God, love your neighbor. And then he wants to justify himself because he wasn't practicing this <laughs> at all. And he says, and who is my neighbor? Again, he's getting at this question of who's my neighbor? Is, can I define it narrowly and then I'm actually doing it right? Because he knows he's not loving those that he despises or that he has contempt for. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This is a notoriously dangerous route. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. 
a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now the priests and the Levites were some of the most religious in their culture. But a Samaritan, as soon as he says Samaritan, this expert in the law is like, ah, come on, man, you keep talking about these guys, why? Ah, they didn't like each other, they hated each other. Their history went back a long time of fighting wars against each other, of religious differences, of ethnic diversity that they didn't like. It's kind of like Romeo and Juliet between the Jews and the Samaritans. As he traveled, he came where the man was. And I love how Jesus does this. He makes this guy the hero of the story. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He had compassion on him. That would immediately conjure up images of God. Because God is compassionate. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So this guy, this Samaritan, Jesus makes him the hero of the story. And he has him find this guy who's beat up, presumably a Jewish man, who's beat up along the side of a road. And he not only takes care of him, but he pays for his care. He pays a lot of money for his care. So the denarii was what you make in a day. A day laborer would make it in a day. So that's two days work. And then he promises, when I come back, I'll give you whatever else, whatever other expenses you incur. He puts him on his own donkey and he cares for him. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan, right? Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So what Jesus is saying here is basically even your greatest enemy, people you despise the most, fits into the definition of neighbor. Remember the original question, who is my neighbor? And we are required to love them. Not just in the warm and fuzzies, <laughs> feelings that we get towards them, but in action by this guy sacrificed a lot of money to care for this guy. His time. He put him on his own donkey at a disadvantage to himself. That means he has to walk. Right. So he went way out of his way to care for this person who was supposed to be his enemy. Back to Jesus' original teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. But I tell you, so remember, he had said, you had heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, we can't miss what Jesus is actually doing here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. He begins a lot of these teachings with the same formula. You have heard it said, but I tell you. Jesus is here establishing himself as the authoritative teacher of the law. That he is the one who can interpret the law, and he is the one that has the authority to interpret the law. Not necessarily the teachers of the law, the lawyers, or the Pharisees of his day. So he's setting them up, he's setting himself up against them. And what he's actually doing here is undermining the entire idea of an enemy, right? If you love your enemies, are they really your enemy? 
over time in the life of a Christian, you're to eventually find that, oh, my number of enemies is diminished until it is completely gone because you're loving them and then they're not your enemy, right? That you may be children of your father in heaven. So in this culture, a child did what their father did for a career. So Jesus would have been expected to be a carpenter because his dad, Joseph, was a carpenter. So when he says you'll be a child of your father in heaven, he says you'll be doing what your father did. You'll be acting like your father. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. He's pointing to what we would call today God's common grace, that God shows grace and favor even to the evil as well as the good. He shows his grace and favor by sending rain on the righteous as well as the unrighteous. So the fact that we are all still here today is an act of God's grace, that he hasn't brought his judgment against sin. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Band, you guys can come and get set up. Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So what he's saying here now is be different. <laughs> this is how we as Christians are to distinguish ourselves from the rest of the world. By how we love one another, Jesus has also said, but also how we even love our enemies. That has profound implications. I'm not going to go through the list, but think of all the other ways that we tend to think that Christians are to distinguish themselves from the rest of the world. And if the first answer doesn't come as love, we're wrong. That's not the way of Jesus. How we are to distinguish ourselves from the rest of the world is how we love each other and how we love even our enemies. And this is even what Jesus did. While he was hanging on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, right? While they are persecuting him, while they are murdering him, Jesus is praying for their forgiveness. Imagine that. That kind of love towards his enemies. That's the Jesus that we serve. And yet we so often try to distinguish ourselves through morality, through legislating our morality in a polarized culture. And that often leads us to show contempt for our enemies or to despise our enemies. And we miss the way of Jesus. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. An impossibly high calling, unless we have the righteousness of Christ. Which again, as we talked about last week and talk about next week, is the beauty of the gospel. That you stand righteous before God, not by any work that you have done, but because of the work of Jesus applied to you. That his righteousness is given to you. So that we can then be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. Because the righteousness of Christ, who is the perfect, holy one, has been applied to us. So the big idea is the way of Jesus is the way of loving even our enemies. And in this, we're acting like God. Let's pray, and I'll come back and apply this in a few moments. Lord, Jesus, we thank you for your teaching that calls us, Lord, to love even our enemies. That, Lord, doesn't define love of neighbor narrowly, but defines it broadly to even those that we are culturally conditioned to despise. 
But Lord, would you empower your people in this cultural moment, in this time when polarization is just so harsh, it's brutal, contempt is running wild. Lord, would you empower and equip us to love even our enemies and in that to know or to demonstrate to the world that we are your children because we're acting like you. So God, would you give us your love through the power of your Holy Spirit at work within us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Let's stand and we're going to sing a little bit together. Michael's in the back. He'd love to pray with you. If you need prayer while we're singing, just head back there. Lord God, we praise you. Praise you for your grace given us in salvation. Thank you for your mercy. That, Lord, we did not deserve. But Jesus, you died in our place. You took the weight of our sin upon yourself, took the punishment that we deserved, and you died for us. So, Lord, we thank you for pursuing us. We thank you for loving us when we are your enemies. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat for a few moments. All right, the way of Jesus is the way of loving even our enemies. This is, as I said in the beginning, one of the most radical teachings of Jesus, one of the most difficult, dare I say impossible, teachings of Jesus to accomplish in and of ourselves. This is only possible through the transformational work of the Spirit of God within us. This doesn't happen naturally. Naturally, we are prone to hating our enemies, to despising them, to looking upon them with contempt. That's what's natural for us. But through the work of the Spirit of God within us and through Jesus and his beautiful example and his life and ministry, it becomes possible for those who have been made new by God. But it's not easy. I just thought of this before I came up here, so I might butcher it. I might butcher some of the details, but... Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor during the Nazi regime in the middle of the 20th century. During World War II, he resisted Hitler and the Nazis. And part of his resistance was, was starting what he called the Confessing Church. And within the church, what he did was he moved out to this secluded region with a small group of young pastors. And he lived there with them for a good while, I don't remember exactly how long, but he lived there with them and trained them and formed them. And through this process, he created, he created a, a daily routine or of prayers and scripture reading and community life together. And at one point, another pastor traveled up there to see what he was doing, and he said, Dietrich, isn't this a little bit extreme, <laughs> right? You guys living out here on your own just doing this. And what he did is he got into a canoe, with him or a little boat and they rowed down the river and they came to a good distance away from one of the Nazi camps where they were doing military drills. And he paused out there in the river and he said, you see that? What's going on over there? So what we're doing here has to be stronger than that. Which means we have to form people so deeply that they can resist the lies and the deception of the Nazi regime and stand for the truth in the way of Jesus in the midst of that. Because the Nazi regime had religious components to it as well. And many in Germany fell to the national church. I feel like it's the same in our culture today. 
where our formation has to be so strong, what we do has to be so strong to resist all the political hit campaigns that you're going to hear later today. All the news that you're going to read in the coming weeks leading up to midterms. Everything that we are exposed to in the culture, our sinful nature, our flesh, the devil himself is drawing us to hate our enemies, to despise them, to treat them with contempt. Therefore, our formation, what we do, must be stronger than that. We have to spend time with God. We have to read scripture. We have to encourage one another in this and not continue to push the narrative of hating our enemies. Instead, we must call each other to love our enemies, to speak of even the opposing party with love and grace and fairness and kindness. The fruit of the Spirit doesn't stop at the door of politics. One of the best ways I think that we can do this as followers of Jesus is to just spend more time thinking about how God has treated us when we were his enemies. Scripture teaches that before we were saved, redeemed by Christ, that we were enemies of God, that his wrath was directed towards us. In Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul says that we were by nature deserving of wrath. Here in Colossians 1, this is the, the end of Paul's description of the gospel. We'll talk about the beginning of Paul's description of the gospel next week. But here in Colossians 1, verse 21, he says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now... He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. This is the beauty of salvation in the gospel, that, that we who were enemies of God, he has now reconciled us through Christ's work on the cross, that he has saved us. He has restored his relationship to us because of what Christ has done on the cross for us. And now we stand before him holy, without blemish. The righteousness of Christ has been attributed to us. If you continue in your faith, it's attained by faith in Jesus. Established and firm. And do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. As I said, this is at the heart of the gospel. And next week we'll talk about the broader gospel, the supremacy and lordship of Christ over all of creation. But this is at the heart of it. Paul says elsewhere that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, the Christ has died for us. As I said in Ephesians 2, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but God showed his mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. He showed his mercy towards us. 
and forgave us of our sin when our faith and trust is in Christ. And so if you're in Christ, consider how God treated you when you were his enemy. Think more on that. That what if God had treated you like you want to treat your enemies? Thank God he didn't, right? That while we were sinners, he died for us. That because of the great love with which he loved us, he chose to show mercy. If God were to solely operate in the category of justice, we all deserve death and eternal separation from God. Eternity outside of the presence of God is what we all deserve. But God doesn't just operate in the category of justice. He does, but he also operates in the category of mercy and grace. And so he has chosen to show grace and mercy and save us and redeem us while we were his enemies. He reconciled us. And so when we reflect on that, when we think about how God has treated us, and then we begin to love and treat our enemies the way that God has treated us, to care for them, to love them, in the way we speak of them, in the way we use our resources towards them, as the parable of the Good Samaritan demonstrates. We're acting like God. And that's the point of what Jesus is teaching. You'll be children of God. So you're acting like God when you do this. And that's what we're called to emulate in God, is how he treats. How he treated us when we were his enemies. How he loved us. And he showed his grace and his mercy towards us. The best illustration I've heard of this is as if you were standing before the judge. God is the judge. He declares you guilty for what you've done. And we're all guilty for what we've done. And we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. That's God acting in the category of justice. But then he steps down from the, whatever you call it, podium, takes off his judge's robes, and he says, but I'll take his place. I'll pay the punishment that he deserved. God has upheld his justice, but also has shown you unbelievable mercy in Jesus dying on the cross for you. And when we reflect on that, and we experience the Spirit of God reforming our own inner life because of what he has done in our salvation, we'll begin to treat our enemies with that same love and respect. This doesn't happen just by willpower. This happens by the transformational work of the Spirit of God within us. So we're going to go into a time of communion now where we're going to remember that. Remembering what Jesus has done in saving us. Remembering the mercy of God being applied to us. We do not deserve this. But God chose to give it to us anyways. And so we're going to grab the communion elements in a moment. But as you're holding on to those, just reflect on what that means. Reflect on what God has done for you when you were his enemy. Reflect on his love and his compassion that he gave you. 
even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, when you were following the devil. Jesus died for you. And the more we reflect on that, the more we'll see how we ought to treat even our enemies. The elements are set up in the back, front rows. Follow me into the middle and back and to grab those and hold on to them. We'll pray for them together and partake together. Jesus, you lived a perfectly holy life. Lord, you were sinless. So the death that you received, you did not deserve. But Lord, we, in our sin, deserve not only death, but certainly do not deserve to be in the presence of God. And yet, Jesus, because you have taken our sin upon your flesh and died on that cross, substituting yourself for us, Lord, we can enter into the presence of God. And Lord, you've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us the righteousness of Christ. Lord, your mercy is overwhelming. God, that you would show us such grace in total contrast to what we deserve. Lord, may we respond in praise and worship and thanksgiving as we do now together. Let's partake of the bread together. And would you pray with me for the cup? Lord Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was shed for us. That, Lord, we stand before you justified, sanctified. The righteousness of Christ is how you see us. Because our faith is in Jesus for all of our salvation. All of our hope is in you, Lord. Jesus, you are so good. God, your plan of salvation is so good. Where else would we turn? would you empower us to live in the holiness that you've given us. To live out that holiness by loving even our enemies the way that you have loved us. By dying for us. By giving yourself for us. Lord, as we meditate on that, would you stir our hearts towards you. To appreciate the cross more and more. And to live our life in the way of Christ. Let's partake of the cup together. If you guys join us, let's stand. Let's sing a little bit more together. Again, Michael's in the back. If you guys need prayer while we're singing, please head back there. He would love to pray with you. Would you guys pray with me? 
Lord, when we encounter these hard teachings of loving our enemies, we recognize how much we need you. That, Lord, we cannot do this. We confess. We cannot do this in and of ourselves. We need your grace. We need your empowerment through your Holy Spirit to live this type of life. And Jesus, when everything in us, when everything in the culture around us is calling us to hate our enemies, to despise those who despise us, to get even, to win at all costs, would your spirit remind us of the way of Jesus? Would your spirit remind us that this is the best way to live, that our trust is in Jesus, that, God, you have our best interest at heart. And, Lord, would you work within us to represent you, to truly live as your children and do what you have done by showing grace, mercy, towards those who we're tempted to view as our enemies. Jesus, we need you. We need your grace within the church today. It's in your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks for being here, guys. If you guys need prayer, again, Michael is in the back. We'd love to pray with you. If not, have a great Sunday.